ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. have a question that came in from a reader asking about substitutionary atonement, about penal substitutionary atonement. And if you don't know what that is, penal substitutionary atonement is the biblical, I believe, idea that Jesus died in our place. That's where, what the substitution is, died in our, in place of us. And that he took upon himself the consequences of our sin, that he bore the judgment of God on the cross. That's what the, the penal penalty comes from. And this reader says that, that he struggles with that because he's heard people say that this idea of penal substitutionary atonement is itself immoral. And so uh, he's wondering how one could hold to that idea of what happened on the cross without um, turning God into someone that we would consider to be immoral. Uh, we, we wouldn't treat one another this way. And I understand why he's asking that, because this concept of, of substitutionary atonement, this concept of of Jesus bearing the wrath of God, the judgment of God for us, is something that has been quite controversial in recent years. I think about uh, some churches have wanted to take the the hymn by Keith and Kristen Getty, In Christ Alone. This is, the wrath of God was satisfied, and they wanted to change that that lyric because they, they don't like the idea of a satisfaction of the wrath of God. Uh, there, there are other people who have suggested that if Jesus is bearing the wrath of God on the cross, then that means that God is a cosmic child abuser. And that's a serious charge, especially when uh, we think about uh, not only the the righteousness of God himself, if God is an abuser. But also, then what does that mean for the way that we live out our family lives? If, if the fatherhood, if the family lives of human beings are to reflect in some way, imperfectly, but to reflect the fatherhood of God, and God's a child abuser, then, then what, does that, what does that mean? There are other people who would say, you know, you are 
in the cross, putting God in a situation that we would never see as commendable, even in one another. So one person that I heard talking about this said, you know, it'd be kind of the equivalent of somebody who comes up and says, you know what, you and I've had a problem. We've had an argument. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And your response being, yeah, I'll forgive you, but first I've got to punch you and sort of get my anger out uh, on you. And the person said, you know, you would not consider that to be commendable somebody asking for a pound of flesh. And so why would we then think it's righteous or commendable for God to say, I will forgive you on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ in your place, bearing my penalty? Why would God not just forgive you? I heard a New Testament scholar uh, several years ago who had railed against penal substitutionary atonement for years and years and years. And at his funeral, one of his former students stood up and said, uh, the, the main thing that my professor taught me was that there didn't have to be a killing at Golgotha for God to forgive me. That was a chilling word for me. Now, let me tell you why I do not think that penal substitutionary atonement is immoral and why I think it's uh, biblical. The, the concept of substitution is the least controversial part of this because uh, the, the Scripture is very clear that he bore in his body our sins, as the Apostle Peter uh, puts it. He, he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. And so there are many people who would be okay with the idea of substitution. If you simply mean by that, the fact that Jesus has gone to the cross means that, that you don't. He's in the place of humanity. What becomes more controversial for some people is the idea of penalty and the idea of, of wrath and of judgment happening there. Now, I think that the reason that this is controversial is because we don't have a proper understanding of what God's wrath is, especially because... Uh, as with so many other things, what we want to do is to take our experience and assume that God simply magnifies what our experience uh, is. Now, there's a sense in which that's often true. So there's a connection between love, the, the way that we love one another. There's, a, there's an analogy there. There's a connection there with the way that God loves us, the way that God loves the world, the way that the Father loves the Son. It's not exhaustive, but it gives us a, an inkling of what that, is, what that is like. We love because He first loved us. When it comes to wrath, though, the problem is that usually what we identify with wrath is a kind of a passionate, irrational anger. The sort of thing that the, when the scripture says the, the wrath of man or the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Often when I'm angry and I, I want to, um, I have this just sense of my blood boiling. It's a sense of I want to get revenge against you. I want to defend my own honor or my own standing and, and, and those sorts of things are going on. I even heard someone who was years ago defending the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, 
who was talking to high schoolers, and he said, you know how it is when you get really, really angry at somebody at school, but you hit the locker instead of that person. So you just kind of, you, you get your anger out by hitting the locker. Now, that is crazy. That is, that is completely distant from what God is doing at the cross or what God is doing in exercising his judgment anywhere. God is not passionately moved by his temper. God is not throwing a tantrum. God is not um, having the sort of catharsis uh, that, that we feel when we're venting. That is not what the, that's not what the judgment of God is like at all. Instead, what is happening is that God is bringing his righteous presence into interaction with sin, which means that God brings the judgment and the consequences for that sin. Now, we, we see that throughout the scriptures. Uh, we see that with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, which I think is probably the foundational scripture for the concept of penal substitutionary atonement until we move into uh, the New Testament. Adam and Eve sin against God, and what happens in their sin against God? They are told, you're going to die. And, and why are they going to die? Because they're going to be separated from the tree of life uh, in the midst of the garden, which gives them life. And they're exiled out of this temple garden, the presence of God. They're sent out of that, and there's, uh, there's an angel guarding the way with a, a fiery sword. They cannot reenter that place of, of intimate communion with God. Well, what's happening at the crucifixion of Jesus? You have Jesus who is counted as a criminal. He is counted as uh, not just a criminal in terms of the state, in terms of Rome, although he is, uh, Pontius Pilate sentences him legally to execution. He is also counted as someone who is a lawbreaker by the religious authorities. So Deuteronomy chapter 21, which teaches us if anyone is hanged on a tree, then that person is cursed of God. That's, that's the reason why the Apostle Paul, for instance, has to consistently say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, and why it's so alarming and, and unusual when he says we preach Christ and him crucified. Well, it's alarming both to Gentile hearers and to Jews, because if you're saying we're talking about a man who was crucified to Gentiles, then what they're hearing is you're, you're following a criminal who uh, died the most shameful death possible, public display of humiliation and painful death and Rome's sentence of that. And so it would kind of be similar to if you were telling someone, we're going to this new church, the pastor's great, and if you want to know uh, who the pastor is, go look on the sex offender registry. You know, we, we would say, you have a pastor who's on the sex offender registry? We would never go to a church like that, and rightly so. And we would say, uh, what you're saying, it's disturbing to me that you would even go to a church 
like that. Well, crucifixion bore the kind of shame that a sex offender registry would in our day, even more so in many cases to Gentiles as they're, as they're looking to this. It also bore a great deal of shame for Jewish people who were hearing this, knowing that you have a visible representation of whether or not this person is uh, right with God or not, because the Bible clearly tells you that the one who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. That's, that's why you have this mocking that is coming from the people in the crowd at the crucifixion. If, if you're the son of God, come down off that cross. He said that God was his father, and yet he's being crucified. He, he obviously, in their view, is not the anointed one of God, because if he were anointed by God, he wouldn't be cursed by God. But of course, what the gospel explains to us is that the shame that Jesus is taking on is not a shame that he has earned in the way that if you go to the sex offender registry, you're looking at people who are rightly you're to be rightly warned about people who are rightly singled out because of their crimes and sins against vulnerable people. At the cross, Jesus has not earned condemnation. As a matter of fact, everything that he does, as he, as he tells us, is what he sees his father doing. And his father consistently tells us in the New Testament, this is my beloved son, in him I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Uh, I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. Jesus pleases the Father, and yet at Gethsemane, Jesus says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, he is using language here that is well familiar from the Old Testament prophets who talk about the drinking of the cup of wrath. That, that God will pour out his judgment upon his people, and it is the drinking of a bitter cup. Jesus takes that cup. Jesus takes that judgment so that what the New Testament is teaching us is that, yes, Deuteronomy 21 teaches us that someone who is hanged is, is cursed by God. That's true. Jesus is bearing the curse for us, Galatians chapter 3, in order that the blessings of Abraham could abound to, to all people who are united to Christ. That's, that's the issue. So when Jesus is on the cross, the issue here is not that the father is angry with the son, and you have this division that is going on within the Trinity. The Father sends the Son, and the Father sends the Son to do what? To be lifted up, that I will draw all people to myself, John chapter 12. The Father is planning the cross, and the Father is sending the Son to the cross. This is, this is not some sort of, uh, some sort of fight uh, within the Trinity. But what is Jesus experiencing at the cross? Jesus is experiencing at the cross the curse, the judgment of God. What happens to a lawbreaker? Which is what? It's a 
uh, a sense of exile from those around me. Uh, when Adam and Eve partake of the fruit, the first thing that, that, that happens that they notice is that they are, they are distant from one another. The, the sort of communion that they had, naked and, and not ashamed, is broken. There, there's now shame. Jesus has a, a sense of, of um, brokenness with the community around him. His disciples, most of them, flee. His mother is uh, having that, that sword that Simeon talked about in the early pages of Luke through her own heart as she watches her beloved son going through this, this death. He experiences that. He experiences uh, shame, the, the shame that is, is happening with the cross. Adam and Eve are naked, and they know that they're naked, and they're ashamed. Jesus is crucified naked, and he's crucified in a shameful way so that everyone can see this and be, be warned. Everyone can watch someone in this state of, uh, of utter humiliation. He bears that shame. As, as a writer of Hebrews says, he despises the shame. He's working through the shame on the cross. He experiences uh, exile from the presence of God. Again, this doesn't mean that the Father and the Son are at war with one another. It means that Jesus is experiencing what it means for a human being to be cut off from communion with God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very, the very fact that a righteous person is bearing the curse by being hanged on a tree is the bearing of penalty. It's the bearing of wrath. He experiences all of those aspects of judgment within the cross. He becomes the sin bearer. Why? Well, it's because God is defeating the devil. Uh, John tells us the purpose for which the Son of God came into the world is to defeat the devil. How does God defeat the devil? God defeats the devil by removing the power that the devil has over us. And what's the power? It's the power of accusation. Revelation chapter 12. The devil is the one who accuses the brothers. But The only reason that that accusation has any force and has any power is because it's true. When the devil says that Russell Moore is a sinner and deserves not to be raised to newness of life, uh, not to be perpetually in the presence of God, but deserves to be treated as a lawbreaker and to be separated from the presence of God, the devil's right. He has the facts. He has the legal case that he is able to make against me. He has the moral case that he's able to make against me. God defeats the devil by taking away the charge of accusation so that these things are nailed, as Paul writes, to the cross. They're publicly displayed, nailed there. Why is it important that this happens? Why wouldn't God simply say, I'm going to forgive you on the basis of nothing but my big-heartedness, on the basis of nothing but the fact that I'm a forgiving God? Well, because Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 15 
says it's an abomination for a judge to do two things. It's an abomination for a judge to condemn the righteous. So if you're a judge and you put an innocent person in jail or you execute an innocent person, that's morally wrong. We, we recognize that. But it's also an abomination for a judge to justify the wicked, to say to someone who is guilty, you will have no consequences for your guilt and for your crime. You are now free. Now, we all recognize that at some point. There's something that goes on that we recognize justice has to be done. So I mentioned that sex offender uh, registry a few uh, minutes ago. When I see a sex offender registry, I'm thinking a number of, of reasons why I'm glad that's there. One of them is it's a warning if you've got children or you've got, um, if you've got people around this person, you need to be warned about this, but also because it is part of the punishment. I want sex offenders to bear consequences for their crimes. Why? And not only because I don't want them to do it anymore, although that's true, not only because I want to restrain them from doing it to anybody else, although that's true, but also because there's a sense of justice. This crime is so awful that in order for there to be justice, there must be a penalty attached to it. Now, the the problem is even our sense of justice when it comes uh, to that is never able to to be met. Now, If you look at the way that the scripture defines sin, all sin is an act of revolt and rebellion against God. All sin pollutes us, and all sin uh, makes us unable to then come into the presence of a holy God without God ceasing to be holy, which he will not do. And so what does God do? He doesn't say unjustly, you rebel someone given over to your own sin are able to nonetheless be in communion with me and be in my presence and be an heir with Christ. Instead, what he does, because he loves his people, what he does is to substitute for them a representative, a head of a new humanity, someone who has no sin of his own, someone who is perfectly righteous on his own, And that person, our Lord Jesus, bears the penalty for our sin. He bears the penalty in our place. He then offers up his blood, just as the sacrificial system has pictured in years past. He offers up his blood as a cleansing. He he is able to make the way into that heavenly temple, make the way into God's presence possible and achieved through the offering of his own blood. So what's happening at the cross is not just amnesty. It's not just God saying, well, I'm not going to count your sins against you. That's true. But why is God not counting our sins against us? It's not because God has ceased to be just. It's because in Christ, Romans chapter 3, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus.
God condemns the righteousness of God, Romans 1, is revealed from heaven, and then Romans 1 through 3 shows you uh, how extensive uh, this, this judgment is and how, how much this judgment is deserved for a sinful humanity. And he is also the God who justifies the wicked. Use that, that very same language, justifies the ungodly, very same language that we have in Proverbs. But how does he do it? Not by becoming an abominable judge, but by becoming a right judge. He's rightfully receiving those who are found in Christ because they've already been through his judgment. They, they, they are now perfectly pleasing to the Father because your life is not your life anymore. You're crucified with Christ, and your life now is the life that Jesus is living before the Father, and then increasingly the life that Jesus is leading through you. That's good news. And we have that good news because of the cross. This is Russell Moore. And you're listening to Signposts. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.